Okay, it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I am your host, an apologetics Jedi Master. Well, not really, I'm not a Jedi Master. But I am an apologist. That means I apologize all the time. Someone asked me about Christianity, I go, I'm sorry. I'm really, really, truly sorry. That's what apologists do, isn't it? I mean, they just apologize. Well, not really. Uh, Apologists, it comes from the Greek word apologia, make a sound, ready, defense. That's what we're all about. Welcome to Fighting for the Faith. Uh, Again, I'm Chris Rosebro, and uh, this is the program that has as its goal to uh, do what 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's not a popular thing to do. Um, if you, you may already know my work. I am the uh, curator of the Museum of Idolatry. I also uh, write for Extreme Theology. Uh, the Museum of Idolatry, you can find it at a littleleaven.com, truly a depressing site. Uh, the main thrust there is to show you the kind of craziness that's going on in the Christian church. In the name of Christianity, got a big Jesus junk wing, and we've got a section that continues to grow, uh, which I wish it wasn't. It's called Christian Erotica. Another story altogether. We'll have to talk about that later. Actually, it's one of our segments today. <clears throat> Can't wait. Um, just a reminder, we are back in production, and very soon we're going to be announcing our partnership with a new Christian broadcasting network. Can't give you any of the details on that right now, and there's a possibility that Fighting for the Faith will become a two-hour program and will go daily. So right now we're in production, working on our radio chops, practicing on you guys, getting better with what we do. Um, we've also opened a new listener comment line, and you can reach us at 949 276 when you call, leave your name and town and a question or comment that you would like us to play on the air, and we'll go go from there. <clears throat> also, you can uh, email us at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Well, we've got an interesting uh, show worked up for you today. Uh, we're going to be t- covering two segments of uh, information. Uh, one, we're going to be looking at uh, Christian pornography. And uh, the second, we're going to continue uh, part two of our look at Rob Bell's appearance at the Seeds of Compassion event and ask the question, is this Seeds of Compassion or Seeds of Deception? So uh, getting ready to launch right into the uh, first segment today. We're gonna, it's kind of a news story, if you would. <clears throat> Straight from the Museum of Idolatry, we have a link to a site called Sex in Christ. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, they're putting out a proposal for Christian pornography. Man, I hope this is a joke. I mean, there's some people at the uh, Museum of Idolatry who are speculating that this cannot possibly be for real. Um, I'm not certain. I don't know if it's real or not, but it kind of opens the door to an interesting discussion, you know, and that is, uh, you know, what do we do about stuff like this? And, uh, you know... (laughs) Well, let's uh, take a look at the proposal here. This is a site that's proposing the creation of Christian pornography. Um, Here's what it says. Many readers have written in to ask us about pornography. Is it acceptable for Christians to view adult entertainment? 
Our stance on pornography is directly informed by our position on sex and sexuality with regards to Christianity. Depending on the circumstances, the act of intercourse can be either a defilement of the body and the soul through lust and indulgences of the senses, or it can be a celebration of God-given sexuality that uplifts the bodies and spirits of both partners. Likewise, pornography could be either degrading and sinful, as it almost always is, or it could depict acts that, when viewed appropriately, could enhance the sexual and sensual relationship of believers. Well, getting a little hot under the collar here. Yeah, Christian pornography. So they're saying that basically... um, that uh, there's some circumstances when this would be uh, edifying. So they basically say, consider the Song of Solomon, a deeply sensual and erotic book of the Bible, which describes in lyrical details the sexual and romantic relationship between bride and bridegroom. Their dialogue relates to spiritual matters, but relates spirituality through a loving physical relationship between husband and wife. This is the model of erotic edutainment that we are proposing We believe that under the right circumstances and giving the correct content, such adult media has the potential to enrich the sexual lives of married Christian partners. And so they're calling for um, a new kind of porn that holds Christian ethos and gives us Christ-centered pornography. Um, So here's the framework that they are giving. Um, this, they think that, you know, this provides the framework for Christian pornography. Um, it must depict only married couples engaging in sexual acts. See, I mean, if, if they're married, then it's okay, I guess. Um, it must portray sex within the context of a Christian marriage. I'm not sure how they're going to make sure that's happening, but that's their idea here. Um, Christian porn, it must be instructional. Part of the mission of Christian pornography is to graphically educate married believers on how to achieve more sexual pleasure, intimacy, and closeness. Okay. I don't find that this is something that's all that difficult to figure out, but okay. Husband and wife must both receive their due benevolence. In other words, that both partners must look like they're enjoying themselves. Oh, and no extramarital sex unless, that's the big word here, unless it is to illustrate the downfalls of adultery. And then Christian porn must be uplifting and inspirational, focusing on strengthening Christian marriage and Christian faith, and of course, no profanity. So if we are depicting Christian married couples engaging in sexual acts for edutainment, education and entertainment purposes, then uh, that is apparently okay. Hmm. Well, I uh, don't see how this uh, fits with the scriptures whatsoever. Let's just assume that this isn't a joke. Let's assume that the author here of this article... Uh, is really uh, strongly in favor of the creation of a Christian pornography. What does the Bible teach about this? I mean, is there something that we can come to? I mean, here's the idea of this uh, program in short. I think you'll get this as we continue to go on through the days. And that is, is that if somebody comes up with an idea and it has to do with Christianity or the Bible, or spirituality, or something that has to do with God. 
if they come up with an idea, well, it's it's just an idea. And so what we would like to do is take these ideas and test them. Is this what the scriptures teach? I mean, rather than freaking out and pulling our hair out and gnashing our teeth and calling people bad names, what we instead want to do is take a look at the idea. Well, it's an idea. Let's test this. So, I mean, does the Bible, does God's Word give us the freedom and the leeway to engage in the creation of and the participation in and the viewing of Christian pornography? I mean, right off the bat, I I can see that there's going to be a little bit of a problem. I mean, can you imagine that poor guy up in the middle of the night who's trying to sneak in a view of pornography and his wife catches him and and his response is, well, dear, it's okay because this is Christian pornography. I'm sure his wife would say, oh, what was I thinking? I mean, oh, that's okay, honey. Go back to what you were doing. I just don't think so. I mean, so just from the sniff test of does this even remotely sound right, it doesn't pass that test. But let's take a look at what the Bible teaches about this. Um, well, number one, our Lord in Matthew five twenty-seven uh, through 29 says this, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that if anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So right off the bat, the Lord, um, as far as the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 25, the Lord includes in the sin of adultery not just the actual physical act itself, but also includes looking at another person lustfully and committing adultery with that person in your heart. So I would find it difficult to in you know be able to make a case for Christian pornography just on what Christ our Lord has said about this and that is is that looking at somebody with lust you have already committed adultery with that person that being the case I don't know anybody who can personally uh look at pornography in a way that doesn't cause them to lust after the objects in in the pornography the people there Here's another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins that a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So I think this uh, is another passage of Scripture that would argue against this idea that there's a such thing as Christian pornography. And then there's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. It says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual, sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Another translation says there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you, as it is proper among the saints. So, because we are in Christ, because Christ has died for our sins, because the the cost the, the of, of our being redeemed was the literal blood of Christ himself, 
God redeemed us with his, you know, through the purchase of uh, the, the price was Christ's blood. Therefore, don't walk in these things, Paul writes in Ephesians. And then there's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And here's what it says. It's pretty strong stuff. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, just that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The Greek word there is porneia. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but to holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So First Thessalonians argues that um, we are to abstain from sexual immorality, and that does include pornography, and that uh, anybody who disagrees or disregards this command isn't disregarding men, but actually disregarding God and what his will is for us. Good, strong cases against this idea of Christian pornography, as if there could really ever be a thing. Now, some of you Christians may be listening to this program may be ensnared and enslaved to sexual sins, to pornography, or other gross sins like that. And you may feel that you've sinned beyond what Christ can forgive. So let's deal with that issue real quick. Um, have you sinned beyond what Christ has is capable of forgiving? Are you going to stand before God in judgment and have Christ tell you, be gone with you, to hell with you, because you've committed these sins? This is an issue that we Christians need to deal with, and this also comes to the the, the question of how do we handle the gospel uh, as Christians? Many churches, sadly, sadly, many churches don't give Christians the gospel. They only give the gospel to unbelievers. So if you're listening to this program and you've struggled with the sin or are struggling with it or you're enslaved to it and you feel like you can't get out and that Christ cannot possibly forgive you, let me just tell you this. It's not true. And um, I have good news for you, and that is that Christ's death on the cross for our sins also covered the gross sexual sins that you may have committed or have you know, are currently enslaved to. They are forgiven in Christ. Christ died for those sins. How do I know this? Well, let me give you a couple of verses that will help out here. First uh, John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't just say some. It says, well, all unrighteousness except for sexual sin. That can't be forgiven. You're, you're on your own there. It doesn't say that. 
Instead, it says that Christ can forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here's another passage from 1 John, chapter 2, now, verses 1 and 2. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for also for the sins of the whole world. Important stuff here. Propitiation there, in case you're not familiar with that word, it basically has to do with making satisfaction or um, uh, taking care of uh, the wrath of God. Um, the word there uh, in this particular passage is uh, hilasmos. It also, another word is hilasterion. And this is a Greek word that means appeasement, uh, which is necessitated, necessitated by sin um, or an instrument for appeasing, a sacrifice to atone or a sin offering. So when you talk about appeasement or an instrument for appeasing, Christ's death appeased God's wrath and God's judgment. Okay, uh, So propitiation is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross by which he fulfills the wrath of God, both an emotional response of anger and a moral uh, response of indignation that God has. And he conciliates God, who would otherwise be offended by our sin and would demand that we pay the penalty for it. So Christ uh, propitiates, he appeases God's wrath and just uh, justice for us. And it says in verse 2 that uh, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Great point that was pointed out to me once is that if Christ died for the sins of the whole world, then truly he died for your sins as well. Your sins are included in the sins of the whole world. So um, you're not, you're not, you don't stand to be judged for, for this, you don't have to be judged for this because Christ propitiated God's wrath for these sins that you've engaged in. So, therefore, repent and believe the good news is what Christ calls us to do. And um, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15, verses 1 through 4. Here's what it says Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the good news is this, Christ died for our sins. And this is a message that we Christians need to hear as well as unbelievers, so that we're not left to fend for ourselves, not left shaking in the wind, fearing that we've that Christ cannot forgive us. Confess your sins and receive Christ's forgiveness and believe and trust in that, that Christ has forgiven you. And then walk in newness of life and not not a life that's ensnared and enslaved by sin, but one where you're renewed daily by the renewing of your mind through the washing of God's word. That is what we're called to. So here's the good news. Even if you've engaged in pornography, Christ offers you his forgiveness. All right, we're going to move on to segment number two today, and we're going to look at part two of Seeds of Compassion or Seeds of Deception. 
Now, in part one of this discussion, we've already shown that the Seeds of Compassion Interspiritual Day promoted the idea that all religions, despite their seeming differences, are all basically the same or share the same essence. And this is an event that Rob Bell, famous Rob Bell of the NUMA videos, uh, famous Rob Bell of Mars Hill's Mars Hill Bible Church, he attended this event. And uh, yesterday, you, if you ha- if you didn't hear segment one, you need to go back and listen to it because I played uh, quotes from different people on the panel, um, uh, that including the Dalai Lama, who basically made the point that all religions are pretty much the same. So uh, at this event, at the Interspiritual Day, uh, this took place on April 15, 2008, and it was actually billed as a Youth and Spiritual Connection session. Um, so this was dis- specifically designed to teach young people, the youth, how to spiritually connect. And the participants included His Holiness, <coughs> I don't say that, you know, uh, because I believe it, um, that's this title, the the Dalai Lama, who is a Buddhist monk, Archbishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu was there, who was uh, the Archbishop of uh, the Episcopal Church in South Africa, um, Ingrid Matson was there, Dr. Ingrid Matson, the president of the Islamic Society of North America. Rabbi David Rosen, who was uh, chairman of the International Jewish Committee on Interreligious Consultations. Rashi Joan Halifax, she was the moderator. She's a Zen Buddhist master and abbess of the Upaya Zen Center. Uh, you get a feel, you, you get, you're starting to get the feel here. There was a Sikh, a Muslim scholar, a Sikh philosopher, a Hindu philosopher, philosopher, a Benedictine Catholic nun was at this event. And uh, yesterday, we played some of the sound bites from these people. And here's the deal. Is it really, the question is, is it really right for a Christian to be participating in an interspiritual event such as this? And I'm making the case that unless you're bringing Christ and the message of the exclusive one true God with you, then you really shouldn't be doing this because otherwise you're sending the message to the people there that you agree with them that all religions are pretty much the same. So um, we've also shown from the scripture that the one true God commands us to have no other gods besides him. And we documented, I documented uh, two different interspiritual events from the scriptures. The first was the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel. And the other was Paul's meeting at the Areopagus on Mars Hill. And uh, in both cases, we showed how these interspiritual events took, uh, really kind of panned out. And I want to remind you of uh, some other passages of scripture that talk about the fact that God does not accept worship uh, to other gods as worship to him. Isaiah 43, uh, uh, verse, verses 10 and 11 says this, uh, Yahweh speaking here. He says, You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Another exclusive passage is Isaiah 44, starting at verse 6. It says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. 
Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from my old, from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So it's really clear there, again, that there is only one God, and he doesn't know any other God, and he doesn't accept worship to these idols as worship to him. Isaiah 44 verse 9 says this, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Isaiah 45, 5 says this, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. So the scriptures strictly make it clear that we are to have no other gods except for the one true God, and that all who fashion idols, they are they profit for nothing. Now, here's the deal. We Americans have figured out a very, very unique way of creating our idols. We don't create them out of gold and marble or silver or little statues or whatever and then bow to them. Instead, our idols are intellectual ideas that we have about what we think God is like. And we say, I believe in a God that does such and such, or my God would never do so and so, or my God would never do that. The problem is, is that that's your idol. That's your God in that's a small g God. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is very clear as to what he expects and what he demands of us. And he calls us to worship him and him only, not our idols, whether they be made of gold or just a figment of our imagination. And remember, Paul, you know, on Mars Hill at the Areopagus, had this same exact way of approaching it. And he was incensed and provoked in his spirit because of the idols. Again, read Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day that those who happened to be there and some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who also conversed with him, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So make it very clear here that Paul on Mars Hill with these people who were following after other religions and idols, that he was provoked in his spirit and that provoked him to do something very important. And that was preach Jesus Christ him crucified, and to preach the resurrection. As a result of it, they wanted to know more about it. It wasn't anything they'd heard before. And then it continues in Acts uh, 17, verse 29, being then God's offspring, Paul talking to the Areopagus, he says, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art of the imagination of man. There's that word imagination. The times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul calls people to repentance, repent of their idolatry, repent of their religious imaginations, and trust in the one true God. And he proved that Jesus was God because he raised himself from the dead. And notice he calls them to repentance. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ calls the church to do. You know, many people know the great, uh, the great commission, you know, in, in uh, Matthew 28. But there's a great commission in Luke, um, in Luke chapter 24. And uh, we need to be reminded of that, of that particular um, great commission. It says this, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So even Jesus Christ himself, in sending out the disciples in the great commission in, in Luke 24, says to go and preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. We'll be right back. Life may be a journey, but its destination is death. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. All right, we're back. Welcome back to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. Listener comment line. Call in, ask questions. Leave a comment. You can do so at 949-276-6038, or you can email us at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. All right, we're back, and we're talking about Rob Bell's appearance at the Seeds of Compassion event, and we're asking the question, is this Seeds of Compassion or Seeds of Deception? Now we're going to get into the heart of what uh, Rob Bell said at this event, and I think it's important that we all hear these things. So... Let's uh, let's set this one up. This is Rashi Joan Halifax asking Rob Bell, actually all of the panelists, about uh, what in their childhood led them to experience compassion and want to uh, follow after it. And so uh, we'll hear the question from Rashi Joan Halifax, who is a Zen Buddhist master and uh, abbess uh, nun, and we'll uh, we'll hear Rob Bell's answer to this question. Here we go. So I would like to ask each panelist, going to Essence, beginning with you, Uriah. Hey, Uriah. Hello. And then I'm going to introduce the panelists, because let's know them not through their visible identities in terms of their publications or I'm a so-and-so, but I'd like them to speak. What was it, Uriah, and for those of us who are no longer Uriah's age, what was it that has broken open in our childhood, in our youth, that turned our hearts toward compassion? Do I call you Father Rob, Rob Brother Rob? Rob, Rob what? Rob is fine. Okay. <laughs> we won't say his last name yet. Rob. Uh, growing up, my father's uh, stepfather was very cruel to him and in my younger years I remember we would go visit my grandfather and my father would do all these jobs around the house for him and would treat him with such kindness and he was cruel to the very end and he would say unkind and harsh things 
And I remember one time challenging my dad, why are you so kind and compassionate and forgiving over and over? Why do you keep going back to his house and doing these good deeds for him when you know he's going to say those hurtful things? And, and my father said, I will love him and forgive him to the end. It's the only way. And, and at a young age, it, it, it showed me this is a better way. Thank you, Rob, so much. Okay, quote number one, uh, forgiveness in compassion is a better way. When I hear comments like this, I say it's Christian-ish. I mean, it sounds Christian-like, but this isn't really Christianity. Um, forgiveness is a better way is not the message of the Christian faith. It's not the message of the New Testament either. Um you got to understand that we believe in an incarnate form of forgiveness, and that incarnate form is Jesus Christ himself. He hasn't called us to just turn the other cheek for turning the other cheek's sake or to forgive for forgiveness' sake, but instead our sins are forgiven. So we are called to forgive because we have been forgiven. As it says in Scriptures, we love because Christ first loved us. And so... um already Rob Bell in this first answer hasn't mentioned Jesus Christ. And that's the big thing, the the distinction of uh, the Christian faith. What is it that makes Christianity different and unique than all the other religions? And that is, it's not that we believe that there's a such thing as sin or that we want people to be better or anything like that. All the religions believe in sins and doing better and doing good and and uh, serving neighbor. And, you know, what you find is, is as uh, the book of Romans says, the law is written on the, on the hearts of men. And, so, and it's not the law that saves us. In fact, it's the thing that makes Christianity unique, the thing that makes Christianity distinct and different is the message of the forgiveness of sins, completely free forgiveness of sins that was won for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so... When uh, Christ tells us to go out and make disciples and tells us to go out and preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins, this is a unique message. This is something different. And um, let me bring another passage into this here. Uh, It's the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. It says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Christ Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So God wills that we know him and Jesus Christ whom the Father has sent, and that's what eternal life is. So um, there is no salvation outside of the one true God. So all of these people here, all of the kids who attended this event, so far what we've heard from Rob Bell isn't about Jesus Christ, isn't about the one true God, isn't about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's just forgiveness and compassion and ooey-gooey kind of spirituality. And as we pointed out yesterday on, you know, during this panel discussion, 
we also saw people saying that pretty much all the religions are the same. And Rob Bell hasn't done anything yet to make Christianity uh, uh, appear different whatsoever than what uh, we're hearing from uh, this general spirituality. So now we're going to move on to the next quote. And this is the most important one, if you ask me. This is the one that you need to pay real close attention to because the question that's being asked by this young man, I think he's 12 or 13 years old, has to do with how do you redeem yourself? And the redemption is a key key teaching in the Christian faith because we are redeemed by Christ. And let's listen really carefully to what... Uh, Rob Bell says in this video. You know, in America, we grade people uh, for their work. Uh, you've done very uh, excellent job this week in um, keeping your anger in a transforming state, uh, turning it into compassion. Okay, that opening segment, I put that in there for a reason. That's Rashi Joan Halifax speaking to the Dalai Lama about how during the Seeds of Compassion event, he kept his anger in a, quote, transforming state, whatever that means. I I mean, turn your anger into good, you know, you turn that frown and turn that frown upside down and it becomes a smile. I, I don't know, just some, some kind of a weird thing in there, but it, it, it's interesting that that's, this is what this leads off with. Here so we go. We give you an A. She gives him an A for being compassionate, turning his anger into compassion. And as His Holiness said, it's not always success that we meet. So, um, Josh from Seattle has a question about this, when we fail. How can uh, you or an individual learn to not be so hard on yourself? And what I mean by that is, how do you learn to redeem yourself for a mistake or something like you're doing all these compassionate acts and you have one slip up, how can you learn to overcome? Okay, let's pay real close attention here. So this kid is being told he needs to be compassionate, he wants to be compassionate, he wants to make a difference in the world, he wants to be a force for good and love and kindness and, and all this kind of stuff, and he realizes he's human, and he makes mistakes. So what do you do? How, what do you do to redeem yourself when you've, rather than be compassionate, you were instead anger, when rather than giving love, you gave hate? So, I mean, this kid is asking a question that every one of us can be asking because we've all experienced this. We want to do good and then we end up doing bad. So uh, Rashi's going to rephrase the question and it's going to be kicked off to Rob Bell. Okay, Josh, I lost the second part of your question. So maybe you can um, say it just a little slower. I know the first part is how do you learn not to be so hard on yourself? The second part of what I meant... Great. That's better. <laughs> what I meant by that was uh, that how, if you make one mistake, how do you learn to overcome that inside and continue being a compassionate person? Oh, okay. Thanks, Josh. I, yes. I'd love to hear your perspective. I, th I think that many people uh, are pick up along the way that life is about destination. So they're taught it's about arriving. It's about having all the answers. It's about creating a nice box that you sit in and defend. But my fundamental understanding is that life is journey. And journey is a fundamentally different way to understand life than destination. Yeah. And on a journey, all I have am responsible for is the next step. And that's all I'm ever asked for 
is the next step. Huh. I don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to defend it all. I don't have to have it all nailed down. And, and if you can shift from destination yep. understanding to, and to, to journey, yep. it frees you to take life as it comes, let it be what it is, and then do the next right thing. Okay, let me translate that for you. Okay, he, Rob Bell says that you just need to learn how to view life as journey rather than destination. And then when you do that, you realize you're only responsible for the next step. Translation, okay, you screwed up, just do better next time. That's really what it boils down to. And um, imagine if you would, if Jesus Christ were asked this question, I've, how do I redeem myself when I do wrong? And Jesus says, just do better next time. You're only responsible for the next step, so make sure your next step is a better step. Is that the Christian message? Is that what Jesus Christ came to earth to do? To teach us to do better next time? To just make it better? No, that's not what Christianity teaches at all. This kid asked a fundamental question that literally is right in the wheelhouse, right in the strength of the Christian faith. This is exactly what Jesus Christ came to address. And rather than give this kid, Jesus Christ, dying for your sins, Rob Bell basically said, just think of life as a journey rather than a destination and just do better next time. And one of the things you, you've got to see, I'm going to put a link up to these videos at the uh, Fighting for the Faith uh, website, um, is that when Rob Bell is giving this answer, Rashi Joan Halifax is just beaming. She is grinning from ear to ear and just thrilled with this answer, just absolutely beside herself giddy. Um, this answer that Rob Bell gave didn't bring the offense of the cross. Instead, it made a good Zen Buddhist abbess woman happy. But again, I go back to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For I chose to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Christian answer, when somebody comes to you and says, how do I redeem myself? How do I make it better when I screw up and I don't do what I want to do? I want to be compassionate and I end up being hurtful. The Christian answer is not do better next time. It is not life is a journey instead of a destination. The Christian answer is you should feel bad. You've sinned. What you did was wrong. You broke one of the commandments. And God is holy and he's just. And he expects you to do better. And because you've sinned, you deserve to be punished for that sin. And here's the good news. Jesus Christ died for even those sins. You might feel bad about yourself. You might want to try to redeem yourself by doing better next time, but even that will not save you. Even doing better next time isn't going to be enough. 
The only thing that it is enough is the death that Jesus Christ died for you on the cross and that he, and he took care of those sins. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness and trust this good news that you are redeemed and bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a different answer. That's an answer that would have stood out. That's an answer that would have made this interspiritual event worth attending for Rob Bell. But he didn't bring the Christian answer. Instead, he threw this kid back on his own good works. And everybody listening there heard, well, if you screw up, just try harder next time. That's what Christianity teaches, rather than that Christ died for those sins. That's a problem. That's a big problem. All right, we're going to go to the next soundbite here. And this one, pay close attention to how Rob Bell allegorizes Jesus' death and resurrection so that it can fit neatly and inoffensively into the generic one-world spirituality that is being promoted at this event. So far, Rob Bell has got up, and he's spoken twice, all right? And he struck out, he uh, swung and missed on the first attempt. He swung and missed on the second. Let's see if he swings and misses on the third and actually gets struck out. So here we go. This is the third and final uh, soundbite from Rob Bell at the Seeds of Compassion event. Um, there is, in the world we live in today, we all know too well the kind of violence, destruction that a spirituality can breed, whether it's the genocide in Darfur, or it's the events that happened in, on September 11th. All right, I just got to correct this kid for a minute. Atheism kills more people in the 20th century than all religious murders combined in all of human history. Um, communism, think of the millions, the tens of millions that died at the hands of atheistic communism. So, well, anyway, he's blaming it all on spirituality, but <clears throat> notice what's under attack here is exclusivistic religious claims that claim that there's only one true religion and people die as a result of it. All right. And I would like to know how you feel spirituality can be used as a catalyst for, not for destruction and for pain and for hatred, but for compassion and love. Okay. So the question is, how can spirituality be used as a catalyst for love and compassion? Already there's a problem here. A Christian can't answer the question the way it's posed. Why? Because we don't claim that spirituality is the answer to anything. Our answer is Jesus Christ. But I digress. Let's move on. Okay. So um, I, I want to ask Rob, who has this huge congregation. Uh, when, when somebody wrongs you, when, when they commit an injustice, when they do evil, whether it's something petty or, or whether it's the oppression of millions of people, it's as, if, it's as if they have handed you this injustice or evil. And, and so you can hand it back. That's called revenge. 
That's when you take the wrong, the evil, the injustice, the hurt, and the betrayal, and you simply respond in kind. There is, next to revenge, another option, which is not to hand back the pain, which means that you're going to have to bear that pain. And, and when you choose not to respond with revenge or retaliation, but you choose to respond with forgiveness, and you choose to take it and bear that pain, it, it, it is going to be heavy, but it is going to lead to your freedom. It is going to feel like a death, but it is going to lead to a resurrection. Okay, hold on a second here. Okay, so this is going to lead to our freedom. When someone gives us uh, pain, rather than giving, returning in kind we and re- give them revenge, we instead f- choose to forgive them. That's what's going to lead to our freedom. All right, just a simple question. Where does it say that in Scripture? Um, well, it doesn't. We continue. It's going to feel like a Friday. But a Sunday is going to come. And I think what we, what we see with Archbishop Tutu and with His Holiness is when people choose not to hand it back, but to bear it, it will always lead to suffering. And it will, you will unavoidably become a better person on the other side. And I think that's what we respond to, is that is what changes the world (laughs) that is what changes the world is christianity about quote changing the world well i guess you could say that it is in a sense about changing the world but not in the way that is being described here Here we have a disconnected forgiveness again. It's not connected to the cross. It's not connected to Jesus Christ. By the way, this is the last of the three times that Rob was asked questions at this event, and he did not mention Jesus Christ. He did not mention his cross, the one true God. Instead, he talked about completely disconnected concepts of compassion, of love, of forgiveness, of pain, of suffering, of not returning pain and suffering and, and, and becoming a better person and making a difference in the world. And everything he said sounded exactly like the generic, vanilla, non-distinct, completely idolatrous spirituality that was being promoted at this event. There were no seeds planted for the one true God, for Jesus Christ. Instead, Rob Bell just looked like one person among many who was teaching everybody there, kids, which is worse, because Scripture says it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. He taught them a false religion, did nothing to make himself distinct about Christ at all. And what he said, as wonderful as the platitudes may have sounded, as good-intentioned, as well-meaning, as all of this stuff, that it, how great it kind of sort of sounded to make the world a better place, it wasn't Christianity. It wasn't Christ. It didn't help people 
to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom the Father has sent at all. And that's the tragedy of it. Yeah, it's a tragedy. So, since the scriptures reveal that there is only one true God and that eternal life comes to those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ only, alone for forgiveness. The Bible has a different definition of compassion than what the Dalai Lama and Rob Bell and the people who showed up at this event had in mind. The biblical definition of compassion is proclaiming Jesus Christ as the one true God and calling people to repentance of their sins and faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the biblical definition of compassion. Now, the biblical definition of compassion runs counter to worldly wisdom and counter to ecumenical ideas and the ideas of this generic spirituality that we were hearing and seeing at this event. And again, if you would like to actually go back and view the webcast, we have a link up at the Fighting for the Faith website where you can go back and you can watch this entire event in context and see for yourself if what was being taught was a generic spirituality that taught that all religions are pretty much the same, the same essence. I showed you the quotes. I played the quotes for you yesterday on yesterday's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So here's the understanding of this. Biblical compassion, the biblical definition of compassion, as I've already stated, is proclaiming Jesus Christ as the one true God and calling people to repentance and faith. Why? Because even though life may be a journey, the end of that journey is death. And that those who die without Christ, those who die without their sins being forgiven, those who die who do not trust in Christ alone for their salvation, they will spend, as the scriptures say, an eternity separated from God in hell. So compassion for our neighbors is to speak to them the truth. Now, this doesn't seem like compassion to the world and runs contrary to the the worldly ideas of compassion that are being put forth here. So um, at, at the Seeds of Compassion event, Rob Bell didn't preach Christ, didn't preach repentance, didn't preach the forgiveness of sins won by Christ crucified on the, on the cross. He didn't proclaim the one true God. He didn't call these young people to repentance and faith. So was he really compassionate? How, can we say, according to the biblical definition of compassion, that Rob was being compassionate? He didn't mention Christ, repentance of sin or faith. Rob Bell answered, in fact, his answer appeared to be in perfect agreement with the other statements that the other panelists uh, made at this event, okay? That uh, all religions, despite their seeming contradictions, all pretty much share the same essence. So if Rob Bell were truly being compassionate according to the biblical definition of compassion, not his own, according to the biblical definition of compassion, if he were truly being compassionate with the people who watch and listen to this event, then he would have preached Christ the same way that the Apostle Paul preached Christ at the Areopagus on Mars Hill. But because Rob Bell didn't preach Christ, the people who heard this, who heard him, will more than likely not experience God's compassion when they die. 
Instead, they will experience God's wrath and judgment because they remain in their false religion, remain following their idols, and therefore they remain in their sins. So if we're going to be compassionate, if we're going to be loving to the world, if we're going to really, truly follow the biblical, godly definition of compassion, then we must, under all circumstances, preach Christ and Him crucified for our sins so that people will experience God's love and mercy and reconciliation and compassion rather than God's judgment, wrath, and an eternity in hell. That's what's at stake. So was the seeds of compassion or seeds of deception? Personally, I think Rob Bell sowed seeds of deception, not true biblical seeds of compassion. And again, I call Rob Bell to repentance. All right, just a couple of things as we uh, finish up our program today. Um, I'm going to be speaking at Faith Defenders in Southern California at Brea Center Baptist Church on May 14th and on May 21st. I'll be speaking about uh, deconstructing emergent errors. Yes, there are such things as emergent errors. And uh, the class begins at 7.30 each of those nights on May 14th and May 21st. And I would invite you to come out if you're going to be in the Southern California area. If you live out here in Southern California, I would love to meet you. Again, the class is uh, uh, sponsored by Faith Defenders, and it's at Brea Center Baptist Church on May 14th and 21st, and I'll be deconstructing emergent errors. Again, now, if you want to uh, talk back and uh, speak to us, leave a comment or a question, you can reach us on our listener comment line at 949-276-6038, or you can uh, email us at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Gosh, that was loud. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Well, we're at the end of our program. Uh, Thank you for listening. And what we would ask is that you would uh, tell other people about this uh, program. Spread the word. Till next time, God bless.